0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the Economic and Business History Channel on the New Books Network. My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, and I'm a host on this channel. Today we're talking to Tinmei Tumbe, Assistant Professor of Economics at the Indian Institute of Management. He was... Alfred Chandler International Visiting Scholar in Business History at the Harvard Business School in 2018. He has published academic articles recently in Management and Organizational History and in the Journal of Management History. He has written two books, one in 2018 titled India Moving, A History of Migration, which talks about how people have moved in India historically historically, and there's actually an interview on the New Books Network as well on this book and his 2020 book, The Age of Pandemics, 1817 to 1920, How They Shaped India and the World, published by HarperCollins Publishers, which is the book that we are discussing today. The book argues that the period between the early 19th century to the early 20th century, an age otherwise known as... Uh, for the worldwide spread of the industrial revolution, imperialism, and globalization, was also the age of pandemics. It documents the scale of devastation caused by different pandemics, such as cholera, the plague, influenza, and finally, of course, um, COVID, and the likely causes and consequences and the resilience with which people have uh, faced those pandemics. The book has great resources for the classroom and also for the general public, such as a timeline of of pandemics, striking tables, such as the death toll in millions for each pandemic, and a set of photographs at the end of the book, which is definitely worth viewing. I very, very much enjoyed your book, um, Dr. Tumbe, and I uh, thank you for, uh, for being here today.
0: Thanks for having me over.
1: Um, I mentioned a little bit about your background, but I'm interested, um, and I'm sure listens, listeners are too, in knowing a little bit more about yourself.
0: Sure, uh, I'm a trained economist, uh, uh, you know, but I wrote my PhD on the history of migration and that took me to a very interdisciplinary uh, route. Uh, and since then, I, I see myself as a researcher, you know, working in three disciplines, uh, economics, history, and demography. Uh, and that's uh, for about a decade I worked on migration, various aspects of my migration, not just labor migration but also mercantile migration. I work in a management school so i you know, I teach courses on business and economic history. Uh, so I would say, you know, it's it's at this confluence of economics history and demography uh, and uh, much of my work has been on migration. Uh, this pandemic, you know, when it was uh, sort of announced as a pandemic last year in March uh, made me sit up and think, you know, India has been really hit badly by the past pandemics. And yet nobody in India seemed to definitely know about it. And even in global historiography, which I teach, I teach a course in global business economic history, I realized that pandemics were definitely under under expressed. Uh, And when I started researching the numbers, I realized this is is a huge uh, issue (laughs) in terms of a complete black spot uh, uh, in our historiography. Uh, not just for India, but for many other parts of the world. And I would definitely, I would say, global historiography. So that's how I got into uh, pandemics research. Uh, But the the connecting theme is, again, economics, history, and demography. Uh, You can say the first book was on migration, and now the second book is on mortality. And mortality is a huge core concern of, for example, demographic history. So in a sense, part of my training and the quantitative kind of, you know, uh, methods helped me digitize large data sets on mortality, historical statistics, uh, and then, of course, a lot of the uh, historical research that I've been doing in the last few years helped me to look at you know primary sources, archival sources, uh, and just uh, first-person accounts, and make a, a much more wider, coherent uh, story uh, beyond the numbers. So that's broadly, you know, about myself uh, as a researcher across three disciplines, trying to make sense first of migration and now of mortality.
1: Wonderful, thank you. Um, so let's go into the book. Um, your book starts with an overview of pandemics um, since uh, li- since the Middle Ages, more or less, and most specifically, of course, the last two centuries. And I quote: um, "Recent Dictionary of Epidemiology defines it as an, you know, defines pandemics at, as an epidemic occurring worldwide." or over a very wide area, crossing international boundaries and usually affecting a large number of people, unquote. Can you tell us more about the overall picture? Why is it important in your view that we are, we start thinking about an age of pandemics um, the same way we think about an age of revolutions, for example?
0: Yes, uh, I think, you know, uh, one is obviously the numbers. I mean, if if you think of World War I and World War II as pivotal events of the 20th century, one of the reasons we call it firstly World War and so on is precisely because of the number of countries that were affected by it. Uh, and also, also the sheer you know, massive demographic toll, by some estimates 60 to 70 million people died in those two World Wars. I know of no you know, global history textbook of the 20th century that would uh, skip over World War I and World War II. They were pivotal events. Now, when you look at the cumulative death toll of these pandemics across a century, uh, you know, that's about 70 million. Uh, and I think the reason why, you know, pandemics figure so less in standard accounts of global history of this particular period uh, is that Europe and North America were relatively less affected. Uh, and just to put it the other way, in, in World War One and World War II, you know, Europe and North America were affected much more. Uh, and so there is, of course, a I would say, a European or North American centric bias in the global historiography of, you know, writing global historiography. It's, it turns out, of course, I'm, you know, what I'm, I'm not saying age of pandemics was really uh, devastating for all the regions at all the times between 1817 and 1920, but the fact is that Asia was disproportionately hit. So if you say Europe was disproportionately hit in the world wars, Asia was disproportionately hit in the age of pandemics. Uh, And the two most populous parts of the world, India and China were definitely badly hit especially by cholera and then plague. And in India, influenza was you know, just an exceptional loss in terms of uh, how many people died. So that's the broad picture. That is the age of pandemic. So if you look at Hobsbawm's classic, you know, the, the age of you know, capital and the, the, the entire four-volume series, uh, epidemics actually figure very less in Hobsbawm's characterization of this period, say 1789, to you know, roughly 2000. Uh, look at Christopher Bailey's you know, Making of the Modern World, uh, again, epidemics is a very small part of this reason, but the day-to-day lives of people in Asia, and of course in the UK from say 1830s to 1860s, even in the US, and of course Latin America also. You know, by the time you come to the late 19th century, uh, I mean that's why you know G- Gabriel Márquez wrote the book *Love in the Time of Cholera*. Uh, it's it's also there in popular memory. Uh, so so there is there's definitely a case to be made that this is also an age of pandemics disproportionately affecting Asia and within Asia, disproportionately affecting India. And that's why the subtitle of my book is how they shaped India, because India was the most affected, uh, and the world, because I do think it is precisely because of these pandemics that you know a lot of things happened. The scientific revolution in bacteriology, for example, was you know, aimed at ending those pandemics, just like all our medical attention today is on COVID-19 and so on. So it, it did have decisive uh, legacies. You can think of the WHO World Health Organization today, traces its intellectual history to the first conference to stop cholera in 1851 and so on. So there are aspects of beyond India, which matter in the global historiography. And I just end this point by saying, you know, typically in this period, roughly, you know, the 19th century, early 20th century, the standard metric business and economic historians in particular, you know, look at is the share of world GDP. And the classic idea of the great divergence, for example, is that the share of Asia in global GDP falls substantially. Uh, in, over the you know, course of the 19th century, and it's a so-called rise of the West, what's not seen in that f- uh, figure is not just the share of GDP, but the share of global population as well falls in Asia. And that's and a subtle point that you know I want to make in this book that it's not just economic output falling; it's also the population share falling. And that's because a, a part of that response uh, is pandemics. That is, pandemics did not constrain population you know uh, growth to, the, to that much extent in Europe and North America as it did. In uh, Asia, so the numbers are stuck uh, by you know some estimate. Asia's share in global population falls by 65% to 50%. So that's a 15% fall, you know, uh, in this particular period. So it's substantial, and uh, that's why I make the case that there is a there's a case to be made that this period does need to be sensed, seen through the lens of pandemics, also apart from you know imperialism, globalization, nationalism, and all the other uh, isms that people have uh, usually looked at this period through.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk about cholera, um, which stayed right and spread throughout the world um, for over half a century. I, I think like two years with COVID has already been enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, but so, but you estimate that cholera killed around 50 million people wor- worldwide between 1817 and uh, 1920. And um, can you? Tell us a bit more about how this epidemic has spread and how um, this spread is related with various migration move, movements and also also the specific case of India and actually also Spain in the early 19th century, which you mentioned was the worst um, hit by cholera in Western Europe, uh, where the death toll amounted to um, over a million, uh, over half a million. Um, people over four waves. Um, could you, you know, tell us a bit more about this specific um, epi- uh, pandemic?
0: Sure. Uh, firstly, uh, uh, cholera is a very unusual pandemic. Unlike Lego influenza, you know, it took a very long time. And of course, it it, it was not it was all, the, the danger was always there. But it's not the fact that, you know, it, it happened every year between 1870 and you know 1920. There were periodic outbreaks in different countries in different points of times. But the fact is that cholera was always around, even before 1817. We say that, you know, most likely there was an unusual mutation or a unusual. Uh, 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 it became much more virulent after 1817. And the starting point really can be identified to Eastern India, uh, where cholera was endemic. So it's not that cholera was never there before. It was always there, but it became much more lethal and more importantly, much more virulent. Now, we now know after you know 150 years of research and so on, that cholera is a bacteria based disease. This was not known in 1817. That cholera is a waterborne disease. It was not known in 1817 when the leading theory of disease spread was you know, airborne, the miasma theory, that impurities in air cause diseases. Uh, so essentially to, and we now know that it's actually really simple to cure cholera. You just need a mix of salts in your mouth and you know, ingest it. So what's called as oral rehydration therapy. This is of course with the benefit of massive amount of research and so on over 150 years. So cholera today is you know, no longer uh, very dangerous. Uh, in fact, you'd be surprised to know, I just read a newspaper article yesterday that in the place I'm living, uh, you know, roughly, there's some cholera outbreaks reported. But again, it's harmless today. Nobody is you know, dying in large numbers. It's about contaminated water and so on. Uh, the transmission we now know is, when you say waterborne, it's fecal oral, which means as long as the sewage systems where you know bodily discharges are going, if they mix up with the drinking water source, that's the classic way in which cholera kind of transmits. And that is why military movements, any camp, like an army camp, a refugee camp, They were classic sites of or pilgrimage sites. They were classic sites of cholera transmission. Wherever you had this potential, where the uh, you know sewage mixed with drinking water, Uh, and that is why cholera eventually a huge part of why it started ebbing in North America and Europe after 1860s was because of better investment in water supplies, especially in cities and so on. So it moves out from India. It you know it takes about one and a half years just to consume the Indian subcontinent from 1817 to 1819, and it starts hitting. Europe in a major way only from the 1830s, uh, and then 1830 to 1860 is really the peak, you know, where the world is obsessed about cholera, just like how we are obsessed about COVID-19 today, right? And it it, it kills in an, an American president, not while he was in office, a few months after he left office uh, in the late 1840s, uh, it is devastating in Mexico. It is particularly devastating, you know, in Spain, where, you know, uh, more than half a million people died. But in terms of the countries most affected, you know, I have a table at the end of the chapter. Uh, India, it was you know endemic, so I can I kind of calculate okay how much of it was epidemic, uh, but overall in India we are saying you know the, the numbers were, uh, very very large. Uh, the China was hugely affected by cholera, uh, so that's more than a mil- million deaths reported, and these are just reported numbers. Uh, uh, you know Japan also very uh, affected. Much more, in Thailand, when it first appeared, you know they had a religious festival to ward off cholera, and you know thousands of people died because it was essentially uh, the worst uh, kind of thing to do in in a cholera epidemic. Uh, and in Europe, you know, uh, the most affected country was Russia. Uh, famous composer, Tchaikovsky, you know, died of cholera. Uh, uh, and there's a whole research paper on whether he died of cholera or not, incidentally. Uh, and so did his mother. Uh, so that was, you know, a famous casualty of uh, cholera in Russia. Uh, and Spain, substantially, you know, we're saying 4% of the population in 1870, 1870. As a, if you see, overall cholera deaths divided by population 1870, that's about 4%. But the country most affected, even more than India, as a percentage of population was Egypt Uh, and Egypt, you know, I estimate about 10% got uh, knocked out and Egypt also had plague in the middle of the 19th century. So Egypt was the worst affected country. Uh, And I think, you know, there's an illustration in the book uh, which shows the cholera scares of that period. So a waterborne disease, which consumes the world. Uh, I just end this note by saying it's interesting that the real scientific breakthrough happens by John Snow in 1850s, who proves that, you know, cholera is waterborne. Interestingly, that waterborne theory, you know, does not really percolate around the world until the early 20th century. There's a kind of, so today, when we look in hindsight, John Snow is the big hero of epidemiology and, you know, mapping and variety of things uh, in England. But his theory was actually not taken seriously back in the day, including by British medical officers in India. You know, India was a a colony of the British. Uh, And so Indians, I would say, you know, millions of Indians died because uh, the officials did not take the waterborne theory seriously. And so just... While you had cholera death rates falling in Europe after the 1860s, they were actually increasing in India, uh, despite all the evidence pointing out to the waterborne nature. And so a good lesson from this whole episode is just, you know, how you should look at science very carefully uh, and and not be steeped in scientific paradigms so much that you get blindsided by latest developments. So these were medical officials who truly believed that cholera was not waterborne because you had a 2000 year medical tradition saying that, you know, diseases are airborne. And so, how do you get out of that uh, system? Florence Nightingale, a very famous, you know, nurse. Uh, she herself, you know, was skeptical of this whole. You know, uh, she. I mean, all these people believe in sanitation that diseases are basically about filth and so on. And if you didn't have filth, you won't have disease. Uh, and uh, Florence Nightingale changed her views only after she was shown, in her very old age, you know, uh, uh, a bacteria under a microscope, <laughs> saying that look, this is what causes diseases. Uh, And so that's a great revolution, you know, which happens in the late 19th century. And all of us are the better for it. People like Robert Koch, people like Louis Pasteur, after which uh, Pasteurization is named. And all these discoveries also happening. The the fundamental aim of those scientists was to stop cholera. And so that's why I say cholera was fundamental in transforming medical science, because the leading lights of the day wanted to solve that big problem, just like people right now want to solve COVID-19.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you already touched a little bit about sanitation and, and science. Um, the next part of your book focuses on on influenza, and um, and this again this chapter touches upon important issues of you know sa- hygiene, sanitation, vaccinations. I'd like to talk uh, to if you can talk a little bit more about that. But also it brings up um, some of the. You know, important social and cultural representations and arguments that result uh, from people trying to define the disease to find out what's going on, um, to find out its origins. Right. Um, The cultural definitions um, that uh, arise when when trying to contain the disease um, and getting people quarantined. And um, can you tell us a bit more about that, please? Sure. Yeah, I think you meant plague, not
0: influenza. Uh,
1: Okay, yes, right. (laughs) That's right. Uh, So plague was, you know,
0: by far the deadliest, if you tell me, between cholera, plague and influenza, uh, plague was in popular imagination around the world. You know, plague was, of course, the number one disease to be afraid of. Uh, Why in Europe, you know, because of the black death, 14th century black death episode, about by some estimates, a third of Europe perished. Uh, People in in Britain were scared of plague because London was devastated by plague in the 1660s. So there was a collective memory against this disease. But it's also a fact that, you know, the last major plague episode happened in Europe only by, you know, roughly 1720. So, after that plague kind of ebbed in the European popular imagination. But in Asia, it was always there. The city I'm in, Ahmedabad, you know, had a plague outbreak in the early 19th century. China had it. Uh, so, it really becomes a global issue in the 1890s, when from mainland China, it moves on to Hong Kong, And from Hong Kong, most likely, it comes to Bombay. And Bombay and Hong Kong, both being, you know, major British kind of end reports, uh, uh, really took the British officials by surprise. And because they had this memory of plague devastating London in the 1660s, they said, we should do everything in our power to stop plague. And what they did in India was one of the most horrific pieces of surveillance, uh, which on hindsight really didn't matter. Because again, this problem of not understanding disease transmission, uh, properly and then taking out, you know, actions which have disastrous consequences. So they passed a law, which by the way, still exists. And, you know, in India, we are battling COVID-19 under the same act. It's called the Epidemic Diseases Act of 1897. It's the same piece of legislation, which we're still working with today. Uh, and so plague hits India in 1896 in, in Bombay uh, and 1897, they implement this act. And there's massive, massive surveillance. It's so repressive mu- so that people take up are up in arms. Uh, a British official is assassinated in the city of Pune. Uh, it's a crazy real episode, which also shocks the British, because the British aren't expecting this kind of a response from the people. Plague is the first time actually the British really enter the day-to-day lives of Indians in a very big, big way. Uh, and that's why the, the, the kind of, uh, you know backlash against it was also very huge. Uh, it turned out later that plague is not a disease caused by impure air, which is what people thought, or poisonous air coming from the soils. But basically, a disease passed on from rodents to humans via the bite of the rat flea, or extiopis. So, this is the science. And it's really fascinating. Just like we mentioned about cholera, this waterborne idea, you know, junked this whole airborne theory. In the case of plague, this rat-rat flea idea completely junked this, uh, you know, the uh, poisonous air theory. But it took about 10 years, from 1900 to 1910, a variety of experiments in the city of Bombay in particular, which established this at first, crazy idea that, look, it has nothing to do with air. People knew it had something to do with rats, because the first thing that, you, that happened in plague is that rats start dying. And there are references to this you know, throughout uh, history, but uh, especially in India. Uh, but they, people didn't know what was the real connection. And so a person, uh, a, a person born in India, a British medical officer, you know, figured this out. And then they realized that the, the key to curb plague was basically good housing, keeping rats away. So rat proofing, rat extermination, variety of things. In my book also mentioned, you know, cat keeping in, in one official's uh, imagination. Uh, and that might have helped, though people say that the pandemic really, you know, I and mean, scientists say that the pandemic probably went not because of human ingenuity, but just because of what we call as herd immunity. And not so much amongst humans, but among rodents. Right. So plague starts kind of disappearing in India, at least from the 1920s. And of course, later on, there are, you know, huge cures like antibiotics, which are very powerful against both cholera and plague and so on. But in the time that it exists, so plague is a disease which really hits India. Uh, India has 90% of the global deaths, but it does go to Brazil. It does go to uh, some parts of Latin America. It does hit some parts of uh, uh, Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, in Indonesia and so on. Uh, But we are saying over 90% of the recorded deaths were in India. And that's about 12 out of 13 million deaths. So it was a huge number. Uh, And within India, you know, uh, particular parts of India were hugely affected. I'll give you one tidbit from plague, which is hugely relevant today. And that is, it was a big mystery as to why plague hit only some parts of the world and not others and why plague hit some parts of India and not others. And this is a huge question today, because with COVID-19, everyone is speculating you know, about why COVID-19 hit, say, America uh, or Western Europe much more than, say, Africa in 2020. You know, now, things are slowly changing and India just got through the worst you know, wave of uh, uh, COVID-19 in, uh, this year. Uh, the, the fact is that we, st- we, we don't know too much as a, in real time about you know, why the pandemic affects some places and not others. And the correct conclusion to draw is that you know, we don't know and we need to learn more. Uh, whereas back then, as well as now in India, you know, people took the completely wrong lessons. Lessons like, oh, we are naturally immune. <laughs> you know, this disease doesn't really affect us uh, and so on. Uh, and so in the, in, the, in the time of plague, people in uh, Madras and Calcutta, you know, where plague was not uh, hitting them as much. Uh, they boasted about how great they were doing in keeping plague away you know very similar to what many governments around the world are doing today the fact is they, they just got lucky they didn't have the kind of rat and rat flea that was required uh, you know to to have uh, plague uh, transmitted efficiently so so they got lucky so there's also this whole thing in pandemics about how much of this is just plain good luck and how much of this is good you know policy management and one has to be careful in you know drawing the right lesson because sometimes you can just get lucky uh, and then that's not you know good policy and then if you get you know, to uh, uh, you know, I mean, you, you throw you know caution to the winds like India did earlier this year, uh, and you know, then then we got this massive second wave which completely engulfed us.
1: Right. You uh, that that's a great explanation. Uh, you also explain how pandemics have at times uh, paralyzed entire um, educational systems, healthcare systems, and. Um, and that all these, uh, like for example, international relations and trade and business, uh, kind of is part is an element of you know uh, that can that is imp- that, are, that is important to declare a pan something you know to declare an epidemic a pandemic. And I remember this. Um, actually, it was right when we were uh, going to start um, the business history conference <laughs> in in March of 2019 um no in 2020 sorry that we um that we were like they are declaring this a pandemic what is a pandemic right uh, so can you um uh, you know um say more about how you know um policy how business how trade how globalization kind of makes up uh, yeah. uh an influence in, in declaring something a pandemic
0: yeah, I think you know there's a huge role of economic ideology to play mm-hmm. in the, the pandemic response. Uh, and this is what you see across pandemics because there's always a business lobby which does not want lockdowns, which does not want restrictions, uh, you know, in, in order to uh you know have and I mean what we've seen play out this year has played out in the past, this entire debate between you know lives versus livelihoods. It's a huge debate. Uh and I don't think there's a clear answer. But all I'd say is that in the what we've seen in the past as well as maybe now, is that if you focus you know, on livelihoods alone, saying you know, let's not have any restrictions, let's just be business as usual, the pandemic will rip 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 through you, and uh, if the pandemic does rip through you, then the livelihoods will be damaged as well. So it's a it's kind of a, a false binary that is, you know, uh, if the pandemic really rips through a population, both lives and livelihoods get devastated, uh, and that is why you know that is the case for at least some restrictions in a pandemic. Uh, but you know, you. The, the, the past does tell you how bad pandemics were for economic uh, you know, the, the economic burden which was disproportionately on the poor. I think similar stuff that we're seeing in this pandemic uh, because these you know restrictions would hurt the poor in the absence of social security nets, you know these restrictions would end up hurting the poor a lot. Uh, back then of course the death rates were also much much higher among the poor in general uh, you know I, in the book I mentioned you know uh, there's one first person account of a person who works with singer company which you know you you are the global expert on uh, uh, and this this person you know uh, because plague as a disease was often uh, taking the lives of tailors because these rat fleas would often be tucked uh, under clothes and so tailors had a kind of slightly higher risk of dying at least that's what the literature of that time suggested uh, and a uh, single manufacturer you know the sewing machine uh, multinational uh, this nm Patil, who i quote you know he kind of talks to his uh, bosses in, in new york uh, and he, and he's saying you know we just can't do business here because there are just these quarantines all over the place Uh, and uh, you know so the same voice that is it's so hard to do business in the pandemic because people even if there are no restrictions there's a fear there's anxiety and so even if there's no restrictions people are sometimes scared to just venture out because they know you know they're they're highly likely to get the disease and note with plague you know case fatality rates were 80 percent it's not like you know one or two percent like with COVID 19. it's like if you got plague you pretty much were gonna Uh, there was really nothing you could do so there was this huge, I mean, there's one thing that they, the business lobby would say, you know, let's not have restrictions. Uh, but even if they said that, the ground reality was often different. You would get, I mean, one of the most stark images of a pandemic is silent streets or empty streets. Right? That is either enforced by the state in the form of a lockdown or when not enforced, just the fact that people are too scared or too infected to step out. Uh, and that's what you, again, you know, see across the thing. Uh, one interesting analogy, you know, I'd like to kind of point out Back then, the British, you know, were the most uh, uh, keen votaries of, say, let's call it laissez-faire kind of uh, economics, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century. And so they were the last ones, if you compare the British Empire with the French Empire or the other kind of imperialists, uh, because they often had these conferences to decide, you know, how to control these pandemics. Uh, All the other countries, France, Germany and so on, were really upset with the British saying, you know, please do something. Uh, Please, you know, have some restrictions uh, and so on. And the British were the last ones to act. Why? Because they wanted to keep the trade channels open because the entire rationale of the empire was based on commerce to a huge extent. Uh, And the analogy, of course, uh, today, I mean, today, the British empire is, you know, not the the world's biggest economic power. It's the United States of America. Uh, And you'll see how delayed the response was of the US, you know, uh, in terms of restriction and so on. Uh, you know, when Donald Trump was president last year, uh, it was a very similar attitude, you know, I thought, as to how the British empire was approaching pandemics in the past saying, you know, do we really need these restrictions? Is there any proof that restrictions work? You know, what about the business losses and so on? So economic ideology has a huge role to play. The reigning economic ideology, which is, you know, ruling that particular state uh, will definitely influence the pandemic response of how much restrictions you have. I point out in the book, you know, I mean, in the case of both you know, cholera, plague, and influence in India, uh, the British interests definitely on trade, uh, you know, trumped many of the concerns voiced by locals on, you know, more protection uh, and so on. Uh, so, so, there's definitely a case to be made that uh, this kind of uh, complete laissez-faire, you know, ideology, uh, uh, maybe led to uh, more deaths than was warranted in those pandemics. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that uh, you know restrictions have to be put in place. Uh, but definitely when the pandemic is raining you know some some amount of uh, concern has to be uh, shown uh, which was I think business lobbies throughout history have been the first ones to say you know uh, uh, keep keep the trade channels open this is good for business is good for livelihoods and so on uh, but what pandemics show you is that often both can take a beating if the pandemic completely you know rips through the population
1: yeah no absolutely um I'm also, very interested in knowing more about um, gender roles and the different um, or a specific place of women in pandemics um, you talk about their efforts in pandemic relief and, uh, and you saw um, you saw some striking images of nurses for example can you tell us a bit more about what you found yeah uh, think, in this sense
0: yeah one is of course you know as frontline workers the word that you use today. Uh, Throughout history, I mean, women have been, you know, uh, especially in pandemics, uh, the most important caregivers. Uh, What we usually see, read, and all the nursing profession, but that is, you know, the professional nursing profession. I think the really huge part of this role is at home, which kind of goes, you know, uh, unnoticed. Which means, especially in India, if somebody fell sick, all the attention would then be given by the, you know, leading woman of the household to the sick people. And even if the woman is sick, she'd still be working uh, and, you know, uh, and and providing that care. So there's some evidence to suggest that, you know, uh, because of this, uh, women in India died at much higher rates than men, even apart from the, let's say, biologically determined case fatality rates, which could vary between men and women. More than that, because of this excess caregiving uh, or, you know, not taking enough rest and then uh, aggravating a problem. Uh, Interesting thing about plague, (laughs) because, you know, plague was a disease, which If you think through the transmission, uh, the more you stayed at home, the more likely you were to contract and die of plague. Why? Because these rats and rat fleas were likely to, the rat fleas were more likely to bite you if you're at home rather than you're outside because they're sensitive to light and and, and stuff like that. Uh, And so in India, you know, with the country with female labor force participation rates historically extremely low and where most women uh, work from home, uh, plague was a disease which really, you know, affected women much more, not just through the standard route of being more exposed because you're giving care, but just the fact that you are much more, you know, you're living more in the house, you're spending more time in the house than the men, and that put you at higher risk, you know. So, that's a very uh, interesting channel in a particular case of plague as to why women, uh, there's no doubt that women die, the death rates among women are much more uh, in, in plague in India. Uh, and, I, you know, in the book, I have an illustration of Savitri Bhai Fule, who's a very famous Indian social reformer. Uh, she started a clinic you know, for plague victims and then herself succumbed to plague. And so, she's in India now become a symbol when they created her, you know, like a memorial for her near the city of Pune in Western India. They actually kind of, you know, the one part of her life story was on her last end, you know, when she just, a few months before she died, where she was trying to help other plague victims. So there's definitely, you know, uh, uh, if you look at the standard heroes of pandemic management, they're usually scientists, people like Robert Koch, people like Jon Snow, people like Louis Pasteur, uh, but I mean, the people on the ground who were trying to, you know, manage the pandemic—that was, you know, half the, half of humanity, uh, basically, women.
1: Right. Um, actually, I uh, when everything started, I was, um, as you know, I, I you know, I do research on sewing and and singer, and um, that was, you know, I I wanted to to write something about it because one thing women did right off, you know, uh, right at the start was. Sewing masks, right? And um, that was key to be able to go out at first and and, and buy supplies for the house. Um, so that kind of immediate effort to to be able to protect um, your family was was definitely very interesting, uh, yeah. right? Uh, so to start wrapping up um, the conversation uh, and and let's talk a little bit about COVID. Um, what do you? You know, what did you expect when re- when writing this book and when publishing it? Uh, the readers of this book will learn and will, you know, po- possibly apply um, to what we are living today.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the primary audience for, you know, this book for me was, of course, India, in the sense that India was the most affected in those three pandemics. And I should say, if you are just for underreporting of deaths, you know, India is the most affected even today. Right now, the reported deaths ranking shows... USA, Brazil, India. Uh, but if you are just for underreporting, you know India is unfortunately number one again, right? And so there's there's a there's there's something going on that that is we're still not learning from uh, the, the and that's what motivated me to write the book, uh, you know, uh, last year. Uh, and the book was written during the lockdown in, in very trying circumstances. Uh, when the book came out, I must say, you know, the, the book came out in uh, you know late last year, uh, and by then the first wave in India had peaked in September. And, uh, I, you know, the book, the, the book ends with this, these this words, patience and humility, because that's the one thing that you observe in pandemics that, look, pandemics don't get to in a few months. <laughs> They're going to, unfortunately, linger around for some time. And you need a whole lot of patience and you need to have the humility that you, you can't just say, oh, science and technology can you know, solve our problems. You know, there's some responsibilities that society has to also take apart from government and so on. Uh, and, you know, what we saw in January and February, and I teach a course now called Pandemics. Uh, half, you know, five sessions on history, five sessions on COVID. Uh, And we we ran this course in Jan and Feb earlier this year. And it was amazing because the discussions were often pitched as, okay, now in the post-COVID world, what do we do and so on, Uh, which is a fair, you know, point to make. But the fact is that, you know, we're still not there in the post-COVID world. Uh, I mean, it'll be there at some point, uh, but we're not yet there. Uh, And unfortunately, you know, the, the pandemic just ripped through India in April and May. And uh, uh, it's strange because, you know, uh, I mentioned at the start that, you know, I'm, I, I also work on uh, numbers and the economics training in me. And, uh, uh, you know, I estimated the deaths in the 1918 pandemic. Uh, I have worked on that, uh, which took the earlier estimate of 6 million to 20 million just for India alone. And I'm now working now on, you know, how many people died in uh, the COVID pandemic in India. And uh, and we're finding you know like the staggering numbers again. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of learning to be uh, done, especially for India, but for a variety of countries, saying that look, learn from what other countries are going through. Uh, it's not pandemics do come in waves. You need to be prepared for it. Uh, you know a lot of basic stuff about pandemic uh, management uh, in terms of how you interpret data. How do you release what metrics should you follow in a pandemic? You know uh, because our COVID numbers in India, for example, are completely you know not showing the ground reality. So you need a better uh, statistical system to understand the pandemic. Uh, so on hindsight. I should be honest, you know, when I wrote the book, I said, okay, the book is here. Uh, pandemic first wave is ebbing. I don't know what the book is going to do. Uh, but now after the second wave, you know, I, I get so many emails, uh, especially from the medical community. Uh, so, you know, I've been invited to speak in so many global global public health seminars now, which which, which uh, I'm completely not qualified to. You know, this is, this is a book written from a historian's perspective. Uh, but the interest and the salience and the similarities are so stark uh, between the past and the present. Uh, that you know, I think a lot of people are now interested to to kind of know, okay, what can we, what happened back then, and what can we learn from some of those things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm happy to hear that that you are getting that kind of um, requests because definitely uh, the past is something we we need to learn from. Um, and I always end my interviews with with a question on methods and. Um, uh, your your first book was not only for an academic audience and um and i would like you to talk a bit about that uh but also uh about your book's um research process because in this second book you you said you know it was written on the uh during the lockdown and um and you talk about digital archives um you know and how how you did your research uh you know using your computer rather than going to yeah. to different uh collections if you can say more about that please
0: yeah, I think the f- yeah. my first book took you know 10 years to write and my <laughs> s- my second book took 10 months <laughs> so uh, it's it's a big difference but i thought the second book had to be written and that's why you know i, I wrote it I kind of became an obsession uh, but at the start of the second book on pandemics uh, you know like any researcher, you have to kind of make take stock of do you have enough material to write a book on And I just lucked out that two of the most important things, the statistical databases were, you know, all there online. uh, And, you know, I had already digitized a part of it in my previous work. So I had on spreadsheet, you know, province-wise data on variety of diseases in India for almost 70 years, you know, 1870 to 1940. So that was a great starting point for me, uh, just to understand where did the pandemics hit, which parts, when, and so on. Uh, And then I also did some global collation of different countries and so on. So that's, so one part of the method of writing the second book was the statistical. That is, I had to get the basics right, that is, which parts of the world were affected and then. It's only then that you can think of, you know, writing a book uh, like this. Uh, uh, the, the second part was, you know, the old reports, the the, or the photographs and so on. And luckily, I again, lucked out because the welcome Collection in UK, you know, just has a phenomenal repository of old, you know, annual medical reports, just a variety of stuff. Uh, and it's all completely freely available online. So it's a tremendous public good uh, that I hugely benefited from. So th- these are the two things, the statistical database that I digitized and analyzed, uh, and, you know, the welcome collection. So that really cut down the transaction cost of research. Part of it was serendipity. So for example, you know, uh, I've been to the British Library where the India office records are kept in the past of my work on migration. And so I had, for example, from that time, you know, a report on cholera in Bombay in 1867. So that time I was focusing on migration and now, you know, I was focusing on Kalev. So in some sense, some of my past archival visits, you know, definitely helped, uh, set in you know, just a few days before national lockdown in India, I was at a outside, I was visiting Kolkata in Eastern India uh, and I was outside one of India's oldest cemeteries, and I picked up, you know, the burial record uh, book, <laughs> uh, just out of curiosity. And I bought that book. And, you know, then once I started writing this book, I digitized that. And that, that's, in a way, India's first time series of deaths you know, from the early 19th century. And it shows that why 1817 is such a big, you know, important year, because the deaths really start spiking from that. So I had, you know, a lot of it was, uh, the, the toughest part of writing this book was first-person accounts, because this is where I would have really benefited if I could go physically to different archives, you know, libraries and see memoirs. So there's no doubt that, you know, the book would have been much more comprehensive if I had that time. Uh, but i again stumbled upon some just on my bookshelf you know i had a book called smriti chitre it's a memoir translated in english uh, of a lady who, who who amazingly gives the first person account of living through plague as well as influenza and so very powerful description which i cite you know and quote at length in my book and after writing this book in the in the end of the book i actually you know, point out to the reader saying if you if you know more let me know uh and you know actually I get emails saying oh my great grandfather you know this is the death certificate <laughs> and so on so so it's a it's an ongoing archive in that sense uh, and eventually I want to put it you know online and say, look this is oral histories people you know coming out with different uh, accounts and so on so when the book is out uh, the effort to chronicle the past pandemic is still alive in that sense uh, but overall it's been you know it's a it, it was challenging but it, I also thought it was a book which uh, required to be done on this aspect about trade versus academic press um, I'll say, you know, I always wanted to write academic books. Uh, it was serendipity, which again got me to the trade press. Uh, and that's what happened with my first book. Uh, that is, uh, you know, uh, I wrote my PhD on migration history and I was always looking. In fact, i talked to academic publishers to convert my PhD thesis, but that somehow never worked out. And on hindsight, great. <laughs> so does anyone, any, you know, young PhD student <laughs> or or a person who's just finished you know their thesis who wants to convert into a book and are being rejected by multiple publishers like i was uh i think something good is always in store uh and then it was complete chance you know with with penguin who were who I, I just suggested you know there's there's really no book on uh, general history of migration in india uh so chapter two of my first book is pretty much coming from my phd thesis but it's a much wider book of synthesis of what others have also done uh mm-hmm. and putting it in a neat, neat place and i think it's kind of worked because uh, there was a huge gap in the market uh, which is which is clicked but i would say having tasted that <laughs> it's very now difficult to go back to uh, uh, writing an academic book uh, just because it's very liberating in the trade press you know you can you can write sentences you can be fun you can try attempt to be funny you can you can uh, uh, basically just i would say it's a much more liberating genre to write in uh, so if you enjoy writing like i do uh, you know, so, uh, I've realized the trade press, it's not for, you know, the 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 reach. I mean, the reach is obviously great. It, it reaches many more people than the academic press, uh, but it's, I think, even more than that, as a, as a person who's writing a book, it's a very liberating genre. So my model now, I think every researcher has their own model of how they want to disseminate their findings. Uh, but my model now is uh, peer-reviewed papers, uh, which basically keeps you grounded to academia. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, books—not in the academic, but in the trade press, so that it reaches a wider audience. And most importantly, I can write what what I want. Uh, the flip side is that once you start writing from the trade press, uh, it, it's sometimes tricky to start writing academic papers again. So I, you know, I just got to revise and resubmit, saying, you know, please cut out these lines; uh, <laughs> they, they're, they're not very academic. And I must admit, you know, they were quite cheesy. Uh, so so that so, so, so that's the kind of thing that you have to work with. They're two completely different genres. Uh, And, you know, you have to be sensitive to both the genres when you write them.
1: Right. No, I love that. Um, So I'm kind of um, doubtful as to if I should ask you about your next project in that, you know, you wrote about migrations and there was and there's like, you know, there seems to be a migration crisis (laughs) continually plus then now. (laughs) The you know the age of pandemics. I am not sure if I should know what you're writing about now.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I tweeted about this saying, <laughs> saying I, I, <laughs> "I'm just gonna take a break from writing." It's it's, it's foretelling a crisis in India. Uh, the exactly. migration book, and then there's a migration crisis in 2020, and then you know the pandemic book and a pandemic crisis in <laughs> India. At least, uh, it, it really came in 2021. Uh, so I mean, that obviously there are tons of stuff I'm working on, but but on book writing, I think, I mean. I think it takes at least a few years to write a book. Yes. I think I, I'm yeah. looking at the pandemic's book as an aberration in, in, in that. So uh, it was just, a, it's it's a, it's a project which just gripped me uh, like no other. Uh, and so I don't think I'm ever mm-hmm. going to you know finish research to writing a book in 10 months ever in my life again, uh, <laughs> unless some unique event like a pandemic come, you know, comes up.
1: <laughs> That's great. Um, Thank you so much for being... Uh, here with us today
0: thanks a lot again
1: this is uh, the economic and business history channel on the on the new box network my name is paula de la cruz fernandez and i hope you keep listening to this channel